Hello. Today on the Loopcast, I have Alice Friend, and we are discussing um, U.S. policy towards Africa. So as I think a lot of you know, um, in the last few weeks, we've had um, Niger has been in the news a lot about our involvement. Um, and so we wanted to bring somebody on to sort of give us perspective and sort of um, have us think about what is, what is going on in, in not only Northern Africa, but or sort of U.S. policy writ large um, towards the continent. Um, we will, we also, in addition to this show, we, we've also done interviews with Leslie Ann Warner, uh, Winslow Roberts about Africa. Um, we will, I posted uh, our interviews with Leslie um, on our, on the account on, uh, at the Loopcast on our Twitter account. Um, and I'll make sure to, when we promote the show, we will also post our previous interviews covering this topic. So, um, Alice, I want to start off with where are we today with U.S. policy towards Africa writ large? Um, you know, we hear a lot about AFRICOM, we hear a lot about Niger, but, you know, what, what is the context that we should be thinking about when it comes to this pol uh, the policy towards the continent writ large? So the important thing to remember about Africa is uh, that it's actually made up of 64 countries in several subregions, each of which have their own uh, political geostrategic context. And so to have a policy towards Africa overall um, is in reality impossible because your policy towards West Africa, which is where Niger is, is uh, necessarily going to be fundamentally different or should be fundamentally different from your policy towards Southern Africa, which of course includes South Africa, um, which has a very different uh, political and economic history um, from really most of the rest of the continent, but certainly from the countries in the Sahel um, that we've been focusing on for the past few weeks. Um, so when we think about uh, uh, policy towards Africa, um, we really have to think in those terms of, is it even fair to think of a single unified policy towards the entire continent? Um, we do have to recognize that the U.S. government is organized in such a way uh, that at senior levels, one person or one office will have responsibility for the entire continent of Africa, uh, or at least most of the continent, um, usually at all of sub-Saharan Africa. In the case of Africa Command under the Department of Defense, they do have responsibility uh, for the uh, entirety of the African continent, except for Egypt, which is in central command. Um, but where we are today in terms of policy towards the Sahel uh, is an um, approach that's very focused on countering terrorist groups in the region and focused on supporting the French, the, the French efforts to do so as well. Um, but also we've inherited um, a pretty robust uh, development uh, and economic support um, series of efforts as well, um, which get uh, a lot of attention, particularly in recent weeks, again, because we're so focused on the military aspects of the policy. Um, but it's, it's been U.S. policy for quite some time to try and complement um, security efforts with diplomatic and development efforts as well, um, so that we're supporting governments uh, and societies in Africa and in West Africa in a really holistic way. So if you look at our efforts um, to assist the Nigerians when it comes to Boko Haram, we talk a lot about the military effort there and the multinational joint task force, 
Um, but there's also quite a lot of um, focus and energy, at least in the past administration, on uh, working with the government in Abuja on what you can do for um, to develop the, the northern areas where Boko Haram has operated. Um, right now, the, the policy towards um, all the regions, subregions in Africa, appears to be a sort of hybrid between carryover from the last administration simply because there's been no relook um, or articulated change to those assumptions and strategic goals, um, but with resourcing that really only looks to the Department of Defense. Um, when we talk about um, what's happening to the State Department, there's no Assistant Secretary of State for Africa right now that's uh, the appointee from the administration. There is an acting assistant secretary, so someone is filling the role, but you don't have someone with that political weight and credibility with the White House in that position. And so the acting assistant secretary, of course, can't articulate new policies that are going to be validated by this White House. Um, what we do have is a combatant commander for Africa command, and we have a president who has given that combatant commander and, and his other commanders um, very wide latitude and a lot more authority to conduct kinetic operations as, as they see necessary uh, without having to go through uh, a lengthy National Security Council and policy debate about each particular action or each particular choice or posture change. Um, so when we look sort of across Africa, and in this case it's particularly West Africa and then the Horn of Africa area, you're seeing um, mostly military activities not a lot of ambassadors in place, or again, ambassadors in the last administration, um, and not a lot of focus from this administration on either um, confirming the policy ends that the Obama administration had put in place or replacing them with anything. So you have a really military-focused set of efforts that are all connected to counterterrorism but that are disjointed from other goals that the United States might have in Africa. Interesting. So, I mean, is it fair to sort of describe this uh, current administration as sort of um, emphasizing the military option over diplomacy and aid, or is it simply because, you know, you, you've approved this $700 million or $700 billion sort of funding package that's going through Congress and sort of the emphasis sort of defaults on military and then diplomacy and aid sort of fall by the wayside? Yeah, I think a default is a good word, particularly in the African context. I think this administration has um, an attitude that most foreign policy is, is military and security policy, and security defined in a very narrow um, military operations context. Um, and so I don't think there was a conscious, not, I can't detect a conscious, decision that we only care about terrorist threats in Africa and we only care about our military effort there, but that is the outcome of uh, not putting, not having personnel in place from the State Department, um, making systematic attempts to defund State Department and development uh, activities through USAID, uh, and simultaneously giving uh, the Department of Defense both a very modest plus-up in budgetary terms but much more authority to conduct operations according to their own logic. Um, so, yeah, the, the outcome uh, seems to be an emphasis on the military, but, again, I don't know 
how conscious it is that we want to emphasize the military in Africa so much as that's what happens in the logical course um, of the decisions that this administration has made about resourcing. Interesting. So I want to maybe um, switch footing from a broad picture to maybe a more specific picture and sort of um, the mission um, in in Niger, in the Sahel, um, can you sort of describe describe the mission to us? Is it sort of this highly kinetic counterterrorism mission? Is it foreign internal defense? What what exactly is the the mission there? So there are actually several different military missions going on in Niger and in the Sahel. One of the primary ones came about after the French uh, intervened in what might have been the Malian government being toppled by um, forces affiliated with al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb and a long-standing Tuareg insurgency. Um, and these two groups had um, been working together for a long time in the northern part of Mali. Uh, and you may recall that there was a combination of um, increased um, attacks against government forces in northern Mali um, a veritable routing, in fact, of government forces. And those forces launched a coup against the government in Bamako. So then when al-Qaeda, uh, AQIM, started to make its way south toward the south of Bamako, the French became very concerned that AQIM, in fact, would seize the government. And so they launched their intervention, and they requested assistance from the United States, in particular in the areas of of ISR, that's Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance, uh, and refueling support. Uh, and we provided that support to them. Um, at the time, it was uh, in extremis for the duration of the intervention. But as the French switched to a longer-term operation across the Sahel with approximately 4,000 forces, they asked the United States to stick around and continue to provide this ISR refueling support, which are these kind of unique capabilities that the United States um, hasn't enough supply to be able to, to do this in simultaneous operations around the world. So we've been in Niger um, working out of Niamey in the capital, um, and they've now, the department has now disclosed the existence of um, another airstrip uh, being developed up at Agadez, which is further north uh, east from the capital in Niger. Um, kind of deeper into the health Sahara territory, and so therefore it's better positioned for ISR reach. Um, but that's been sort of the bulk of the effort uh, since that uh, sort of 2013-2014 timeframe. But we the Nigerians and other West African forces in a trained capacity uh, for many, many years. Um, uh, the Bush administration, in fact, started something called the Sahara Counterterrorism Partnership, um, and that has evolved over time um, into these sort of partnering missions that special operations forces tend to do. Um, they come under a variety of different authorities, which is part of why it gets so confusing, I think, for Congress and others to track. Because if you're training or equipping, that might be one authority. If you're advising and assisting, it might be under another. And in the particular case of this um, uh, this mission uh, where we lost four soldiers, it seems that this was an accompanying mission, which is to say there were 12 members of a detachment of special operations forces uh, in the area of Tongo Tongo with about 30 Nigerian forces. Actually, out 
uh, doing a patrol engagement mission uh, with, with the local community. Um, and so they were accompanying those forces. We tend to only do accompany missions, however, when we assess the risk of engagement with any kind of adversary and any kind of kinetic action is very, very low. Um, because a company does not mean combat. A company merely means we're going forward with you and uh, we're going to do some basic sort of um, uh, operational uh, patrol type um, activities, but that we're not uh, intending to engage with an enemy. Um, and so that sort of shows the range of things that the military might be up to in the air. Um, Flying ISR, we've done some construction of uh, an airbase up at Agdes. Um, we've got uh, train, advise, assist troops on the ground. We currently have some company missions going on as well. Um, the other thing to keep in mind about these kinds of soft companies is that they tend to rotate in and out. They're not stationed there for, on a long-term basis. Um, and so that can be another way that it's hard to keep track as an, as an outsider or as a member of Congress uh, of kind of who's where when because um, the rotations are pretty frequent. We're not, you know, we're talking about personnel out on a regular basis. Interesting. Um, let me um, sort of ask... Um, I think a point of controversy has been um, whether or not the mission has been resourced enough in the sense of um, I think people were posting sort of, you know, or pointing out in the, in the multiple tellings of what happened in Niger were, you know, you had an incident and then you had to call on, and in one telling of the story, it's contractors to sort of, um, you know, uh, relying on contractors and then this other telling it's relying on uh, the French. And so sort of, I mean, help us understand what is sort of um, the resourcing of this mission beyond sort of, you know, what is the resourcing of the mission? Yeah, so this is a question about what is our military posture in Africa um, and in West Africa. Um, and the answer is it's pretty light. Um, so, uh, you know, we're used to operating in places like Iraq and Afghanistan where we have a whole lot of major operating bases, major forward operating sites, um, smaller forward staging areas, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, where we can keep, you know, large numbers of aircraft, um, you know, medevac capabilities, rotary wing, fixed wing, um, intelligence capabilities, you know, how do you name it? Um, and we don't have that in, in the West African theater or, or across most of the continent. The most that we have anywhere in Africa is uh, in Djibouti at Camp Lomagnier. Um, and even Camp Lomagnier, though, you know, there's, there's quite a bit there relative to what else we have in Africa, um, it, it still kind of pales in comparison to the kinds of outposts that we've developed in Afghanistan uh, over the years. Um, of AFRICOM has emphasized is that um, when they do their own analysis for the kinds of demands oh, they... Oh, we go. Okay, we're back. Sorry about that. Um, 
I think we were discussing how the mission is resourced. Yeah, and so I was saying um, that this is really a question about what our posture is in West Africa. Um, and when folks in DOD refer to military posture, they mean everything from um, what uh, sort of other folks would think of as bases, although there are different flavors of, of base um, and operating sites. Um, but it's bases, it's assets in theater, so things like helicopters and airplanes, um, and it's, it's personnel. Uh, and the posture in West Africa is very light, um, and it's very light uh, on purpose. The diplomatic relationship uh, with African nations is very, very sensitive to American military presence, um, indeed to really any foreign military presence. Um, it's it's equally sensitive to the to the French military's presence as well, and their their um, their posture is not quite as light as ours, uh, and is also different, um, but nevertheless uh, is is still sort of assuming an austere operating profile, um, and so it's true that this particular unit did not have the kind of medevac capabilities. Um, or a quick reaction force uh, nearby that belonged to them uh, that they might have had if they'd been in Afghanistan or Iraq. And I think that's what a lot of Americans are used to at this point, is knowing that there's uh, a large amount of infrastructure and support uh, for our forces when we send them forward because we're used to sending them into a war zone. Um, and that's not what we have in West Africa. Um, so uh, the details uh, of, the, of the event here that came uh, to the Americans' assistance, um, and that indeed Contract Air um, was involved in uh, both exfiltrating uh, the casualties um, and in some of the medevac uh, involved in, in getting those forces out of theater. Um, but, you know, the broader question of should there be more in West Africa if we're going to continue to do these kinds of missions, I think is a valid one. I, I think it's worth pointing out that we've been doing these types of operations for a very long time um, and in West Africa, and this is the first time an event like this has happened. Um, so it's entirely possible that up to this point, um, the risk profile has been reasonably well-matched uh, with the posture that we have there. But it's also possible to argue that we've been running this risk for a long time and we've been getting lucky and the luck ran out. Um, or that we've been running this risk for a long time and it's greater now because the organization and equipping of the militant groups that are operating in the area um, has suddenly gotten more sophisticated. Um, so I think all of these things are... Um, considerations that certainly the Pentagon is going to go through as they do their after-action review of what happened. Um, and it's also worth debating in a broader context um, how much more uh, of a military effort do we want to put into West Africa? Um, what kind of basing do we want to sustain there into the future? What will our diplomatic relationships be able to support there? Um, and even is this the kind of mission that under regular circumstances needs a large infrastructure footprint nearby in order to support it? Or again, under normal circumstances, uh, do we actually have the right number of assets in theater? 
Um, you know, the commander of AFRICOM, I think, most certainly would argue, no, I, I need more. I need more ISR. I need more medevac. This particular commander has been talking about medevac for a long time. It really concerns him, um, and understandably so. Um, but, you know, more medevac means uh, more aircraft, which means more access to airfields, perhaps building more airfields. Um, and it might mean uh, a larger footprint and rotations on a more sustained basis. So all of these things we need to put up against our diplomatic and political objectives and relationships in the region and decide whether or not we want to do those things. Interesting. So when we, when we discuss relationships in the region, um, how do we pair that with, um, I think there was a political article, was it political or foreign policy that basically says that you know, five out of the 54 positions, ambassadorships, have been filled or they're in the process of being filled. And, you know, how do we how do we understand diplomacy on the continent when this administration seems to either be slow to um, pushing candidates through uh, Congress um, and they don't really seem interested in, in, in sort of pushing candidates through? I mean, you know, where do we put you know, this low, relatively low number of ambassadorships in the, in this. Yeah, I mean, the, the overall role of the State Department in this administration's foreign policy is really troubling. Um, so even if you had uh, every ambassador uh, nominated and confirmed and in place on the continent, if there's nobody back at, uh, at the White House and the National Security Council meetings, um, who's able to represent the State Department and have some real political and bureaucratic weight inside of those conversations, um, then the ambassador has a lot more trouble uh, pushing back against um, sort of political ideas from other quarters or questions about military posture or questions about um, diplomatic objectives as well. Right? The State Department's not the only place that can come up with diplomatic plans. It's just that it's supposed to have the lead in foreign policy for them, um, and it's supposed to have um, equal, if not greater, weight at the policymaking table as those other elements um, of the executive branch that conduct foreign policy and formulate it. Um, so, you know, I have written about my concern that there's no assistant secretary of state um, nominee confirmed in place for the administration. Um, and that there aren't enough ambassadors confirmed on the continent. Um, but even sort of the first principle of that is we need an administration to take the idea of diplomacy as a foreign policy much more seriously than they're taking it now. Um, even if you are a skeptic of diplomacy um, and you're um, much more interested in sort of how the military fares, my argument is that it's really bad for the military to be out and about operating without any kind of diplomatic backup. Um, Secretary Mattis, in fact, has been quoted as saying much the same. Um, if you don't have somebody in country, and luckily we had a pretty capable ambassador still in country in Niger when this happened, um, there's nobody there to take the phone call uh, from the host nation. There's nobody there to help Africa Command and Security Assistance Officer who's stationed at, at the embassy work through all of the diplomatic and political channels that they need to work through. Um, 
there's nobody to handle the relationship on a regular day-to-day basis uh, with the country. And so you can imagine things happening like, well, Chad is a great example, right? You know, we're not entirely sure from the outside what happened there, but Chad was included on um, the most recent uh, travel ban and uh, seemed very surprised by that fact and um, uh, in theory expressed its, its concern by withdrawing some troops out of the other side of Asia from where this event happened. Um, but it was a you know, small but, but you know, real diplomatic firestorm that could have been avoided, I think, and somebody from Africa able to break into the conversation in Washington and say, wait, 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 here's why you don't want to do this to your political context. Okay, we're back. Sorry about that. Um, go ahead. Yeah, remind me where we were. <laughs> um, oh, uh, we were discussing Chad and sort of how it's been placed on a travel ban, and this is sort of sort of pointing towards a, a sort of mixed up sort of diplomatic approach towards um, yeah, West I, Africa. Yeah, I was going to say. Um yeah, you know, you can look to um, the events with with putting Chad on a travel ban, which happened at the end of September, so just prior to what happened in Niger. Um, you can look at that as lessons learned for what happens if you don't have regular contact um, with the folks at the embassy who are able to explain to you uh, the context for the wider relationship. Uh, including its history, including, um, you know, how the host nation will likely respond to various actions. Um, you know, the, the embassy is often, in a policy sense, there for a gut check. Uh, you know, when we sit around the table at the NSC, uh, when the ambassador is included, the ambassador can be the one to say, that's a really bad idea and here's why. Um, and I don't know exactly how the inclusion of Chad on the travel ban went down, but I suspect that the folks that really worked day-to-day with the Chadians on the ground who understood exactly how the Chadians would respond, which was not well, um, weren't given the opportunity to say, well, hey, wait a minute, I think if you do this, you're going to upset them needlessly, and you're not going to get as much benefit from putting them on the ban as you will from not putting them on the ban <laughs> um, and, and working with them on whatever your concerns are. Um, so all that is to say, uh, you know, we need our ambassadors out there. We need the State Department to be continuing to give that comprehensive look at the full uh, political and geostrategic context for what we try to accomplish militarily. And if that's not happening we'll fall all over ourselves in small ways, like with Chad, um, or in, in, in bigger ways. Um, and so my wish is that this administration uh, would realize that the State Department provides a really vital strategic service um, and that you really can't accomplish anything without your diplomats. Then I, want, I want to maybe sort of bring up a point that has been sort of the common thread in, in at least the Loopcast's conversations about um, not only just uh, Western Africa and the Sahel, but also to a degree um, the continent, which is, you know, A, are we over-militarizing 
you know, foreign policy towards Africa. And then sort of sub point to that is, are other nations getting the benefit while the United States sort of holds the security bag, so to speak, that, you know, for instance, uh, China's relationship with Niger is, you know, it's based on, you know, investment on oil. And then with France, they're also getting some sort of economic benefit. And then for the United States, it's, you know, we're doing not all the security work, but it, what it sounds like is a large part of the security work. So it, you know, to circle back, our, you know, is our policy towards the Sahel, towards Western Africa, sort of too much emphasis on the military option? So if you had asked me this question a year ago, uh, I would have strongly argued that no, we, we have not militarized our policy nor our actual policy approaches on the continent. Um, and I would have made an argument that I did make in writing, actually, um, the myth of the militarization of U.S. Africa. I would have made the argument that our footprint is small, our profile is low, the places where we're um, assisting militarily, we're doing what we call by, with, and through partners. The watchword for the Obama-era policy was, um, uh, I think, not even come up with by the Obama administration, African solutions to African problems. Um, you saw it in Somalia uh, with us working through AMISOM, the AU mission in Somalia. Uh, you saw us working with other peacekeeping forces around the continent. And even initially in Mali, uh, we were supporting the French, but we were also supporting West African forces that came in either to work with the French or to start forming um, the genesis of the peacekeeping mission that, that today is under the UN and is still there. Um, so there was a lot of partnering across the continent, um, and there was not really a U.S. military lead almost anywhere. And on top of it, um, if you actually looked at the budgetary numbers, we were spending way more money on development assistance, health assistance. The Bush administration was particularly good about this, starting um, PEPFAR, the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief. Um, and so I would have said even though we pay a lot of attention whenever um, something occurs militarily and involves the United States on the continent of Africa, when you actually look at it in context, um, and look at it next to what we're doing in the diplomatic and development uh, and health sectors, um, the, the military effort uh, just pales in comparison. And I also would have told you that the State Department was very much in the lead, that we had um, a couple of very strong assistant secretaries of state um, and a real understanding and respect for chief of mission status on the continent. Um, now, as I mentioned earlier, what you have is an administration that overall de-emphasizes diplomacy and what the State Department can bring to bear and emphasize, emphasizes military tools. And so I think what we're seeing is a slight to moderate uptick in um, military activities on the continent, a change in their authorities, or rather an expansion in their authorities that can be given to them by the president directly, although not a change so far in authorities given by Congress, and that's important. Um, and the combination of those two things, uh, it pains me to say, I think militarizes our Africa policy. 
But again, it's almost militarization by default. We're kind of backing into this position without really thinking through, is this the only interest we have on the continent? I was really sort of intrigued when the president um, around the UN General Assembly had a meeting with um, multiple African leaders, and one of the things he said to them was that he understood uh, the business interests and investment on the continent. Um, which is something that a lot of Africanists in D.C. really try to emphasize is, um, look, you know, these aren't, this isn't a charity case, this continent. It's actually um, uh, a great opportunity for investment um, and, and uh, engagement. Um, and so that was sort of heartening to hear, but I haven't seen any sort of follow-up to that, to that comment. And again, he doesn't have an assistant secretary of state he doesn't have a full-up Africa team um, to really um, take him any direction in Africa other than a military and purely counterterrorism direction. Interesting. So then, I mean, if, you know, what is the position of other nation states then in the sense of, you know, when we, I'll just pick on China, when we when we look at China's policy, they seem to, you know, invest a lot of, of diplomatic resources, of financial resources, both public and private. And they, they seem, at least from the surface, they, they seem to say that really security is going to be, you know, the UN is responsible for that or um, regional groups or the United States. So where do we put, when, when we talk about United States sort of defaulting to military, to militarization, where do we put sort of the other huge competitor, China, in all this? Or do we even, is it just sort of not something we sort of should be thinking about? No, I think we absolutely should be thinking about it. I think there's no direct relationship between our investment in security operations and China. Um, but I do think that our two approaches are very, very different from each other. The Chinese, of course, have been treating um, Africa as an investment and business opportunity, um, both for Chinese companies and then also for extraction purposes. Um, what they tend to do is operate in places where it's, it's relatively stable um, and relatively safe to operate. Um, I have noted along with, you know, other analysts that watch this um, that the Chinese just opened their first overseas logistics base in Djibouti, just a little bit uh, north of where the American uh, forward operating site at Camp Lemonnier is in Djibouti. Um, and they say it's a logistics base uh, and it is connected to uh, a railway that the, they, the Chinese also built uh, between that port in Djibouti and Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia. Um, and it's unclear now if this is a sign that China is going to introduce more and more security forces on the continent. They've been involved in peacekeeping in Africa for many years. Um, so it's unclear if they're going to kind of go the direction that the United States has gone in before um, and, and play a much greater role in stabilization and security operations, perhaps building partner capacity efforts, um, you know, more military sales on the continent or not. Um, 
But certainly from a um, on the business side and from an investment side uh, and also from a, a sort of a loans perspective, the Chinese have been way more active uh, in those areas in Africa than the United States has been. Um, again, our policy has tended to focus on development and assistance as opposed to investment per se. Interesting. So I think we've sort of come, we've covered a lot today and, and so for my last question, I'm, I'm sort of curious, you know, leave us something to sort of think about. I mean, what are, you know, before we end our interview, you know, what should we as the audience be thinking about, you know, you know, U.S. Africa policy, U.S. Um, actions in Niger, you know, what is, what is something we should be thinking about? Well, I've been thinking a lot about um, the upcoming conversations we're about to start having on the Hill, on uh, renewed conversations on the Hill, about the 2001 authorization for the use of military force against al-Qaeda and adherents. Um, and I've been thinking about it a lot because um, there are groups in West Africa um, and uh, Somalia as well that uh, adhere to al-Qaeda, um, who use the al-Qaeda name as part of their branding. Uh, and there are also groups now in West Africa that claim an affiliation to the Islamic State. Um, and so that has gotten uh, the United States' attention. Um, but I, I'm a little concerned that um, the affiliation is more cosmetic than it is meaningful. Um, and this leads me to recommend that as we're thinking about the AUMF, we maybe should return uh, to a model where the AUMF is tied more to geography than it is to simply the name of the group that we're combating. Because just to say that you're an Al-Qaeda affiliate means different things for different affiliates. Um, and similarly with the Islamic State, you know, there's sort of a lot of analysts debate the degree to which Boko Haram is really um, connected to the Islamic State in sort of a material command and control um, similar objectives, meaningful way, or whether it's still essentially an insurgency against the Nigerian state uh, and still has very, very local aims and local recruitment. And, you know, perhaps in a broad ideological sense, kind of aligns itself with the, the global transnational movement, but to all practical purposes, really just behaves itself like Boko Haram has always behaved itself. Um, and so I think it's worth thinking those things through in the Africa context as we talk about counterterrorism and we talk about whether or not we should deploy more forces or we should increase kinetic activity, whether or not uh, we want to start drone strikes in West Africa. All of these things are, are in the, the conversation right now. Um, and I think we really should start out with a good understanding of the terrorist groups that we're talking about here and that we would be confronting. Um, and the degree to which they're really interested in uh, confronting the United States if we weren't there in large numbers. In other words, would they be, continue to be more interested in targeting local governments? And so we should continue to recognize that this is the local government's fight. Or has the threat evolved in such a way that we can say, yes, if we don't do something, we're essentially going to allow Afghanistan 2001 to redevelop again? 
Um, I think there's a lot of smart people out there talking about this, and I think this is where our conversation should start. And I think the debate about the AUMF should take that conversation really seriously and not simply say, yes, let's add ISIS to the al-Qaeda list and update it and put a sunset clause in there and we're done. I, I think there needs to be a much deeper look than that. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. Um, so thank you. <laughs> thank you for having me. Oh, awesome.